don't believe, I always think that all this bullshit about to provoke you a little bit more, this is superstitious logic. It's pure ideology. You know this ecological bullshit like... Uh... Hello, welcome to the end of the world. This is Anthropocene's episode 31. and Today we are continuing October uh, with the 11th hour from 2007 and Ice on Fire from 2019, so from this year. And these are two documentaries that are linked by subject matter and also by one Leonardo DiCaprio, which I, I learned if you go to Wikipedia and you type in Leonardo, the first one is Da Vinci and he's the second one. So that's a pretty good, pretty good market to be in, I feel like. Yeah, that uh, that surprises me that Da Vinci is first. And it kind of did me too. Although I guess the first result was Leo, like the astrological sign, because that's uh. so hot right now for some reason. Yeah. Um, these these movies are also connected by director, right? Yes, Leela yes. or Layla or Leela Connors. Leela, yeah, Leela Connors, who, uh, as we were discussing beforehand, has done some other stuff, but nothing that I have heard of other than these films. Uh, yeah, look, she did one called We the People 2.0, which I don't really know anything about, except that it's narrated by Walton Goggins, and I'm in. Yeah. Uh, Walton Goggins has a new show on like ABC, I think, called The Unicorn, and it's about him being a uh, recently widowed, still relatively young, attractive, successful guy. So he's a unicorn and all the women want him or whatever. Um, I, I just know that because I read a thing that was like the worst TV shows that are out right now. And that ah. was the, the writer's pick is like, this is a waste of Walton Goggins' talent. We're very yeah. we're, we're going to be hard to top, uh, vice principals. Yeah, we're Goggins heads on this podcast. Oh, for sure. Um, so yeah, we're talking about the eleventh hour and ice on fire. Uh, the eleventh hour comes right off the hills of an inconvenient truth in two thousand seven. Did you see the the like two second shot of Al Gore? I I probably don't remember it because there's so much going on. It's at the very end. They don't even like mention him by name. It's just like a two second shot of him given given the PowerPoint back on his bullshit. <laughs> I listened to last week's episode. I laughed out loud when you said, "Lord help me, I'm back <laughs> on my bullshit." Well, that that's Al Gore in a nutshell, though. And yeah. that that should be like the opening slide of his PowerPoint. It says, "I'm back on my bullshit." It's that. Uh, that that's the title. I don't know if you've ever seen this because you're you're not as uh, terminally online as i am but there's this the meme of a uh, bugs bunny and he's like he looks like a character from pulp fiction and he's holding like a big blunder bus and it says lord help me i have to go back to the old me or it's time to go back to the old me i've not seen that yeah uh well it's okay because you just get to listen to me butcher my description <laughs> of it uh but that yeah that's pretty much my attitude toward that but in this it, it, these two movies is kind of interesting because dicaprio if you didn't have you if you haven't heard about these films and also the the one of the trilogy that we kind of left out um uh, that i can't before remember. the before the flood yeah before the flood uh we we sort of skipped over that one uh but if you didn't know about those films you would have no idea that he has any sort of involvement in causes like this um although although his uh oscar acceptance speech he he specifically addressed climate change yeah but nobody really gives a shit or remembers Uh, all the only oscar acceptance speech anyone remembers is uh uh, mcconaughey's where he's talking about his dad drinking beer in heaven (laughs) well there there was the uh the brando one right for the godfather where he sent up 
the uh, native activist to accept the award for him. But hmm. that, you know, that's been three decades ago or something like that. Um, so, yeah, DiCaprio is not really somebody who you would tend to associate with causes like this, but he seems very involved, at least in the sense that he's narrated three documentaries and produced them. Yeah, it's uh, he's just this is his thing, you know, would you know, I, it's a good thing to have if you're going to have a thing as a celebrity, uh, let it be this and not like you know, child molestation or something. Yeah. I, I think we can go ahead and fully endorse, uh, climate activism over child molestation. Yeah. If there's, if there's one thing we can definitively do. If I may do, be so bold. <laughs> yeah. That's a, uh, that's a stance we're willing to, we'll die on that hill. We'll take <laughs> that stance. Um, so we can just jump right in because right before we started recording, we had a, a disagreement uh, about the, the films and it, in the sense that you said you were more of a fan of the 11th hour whereas i am i was more kind of a team ice on fire kind yeah, of guy. yeah I, I i watched and i was curious i asked matt i said did you you know which one did you watch first and we watched them in the same order we both watched ice on fire first because it is readily available it's on i think it's on amazon it's on canopy it's on a couple different streaming services. It's on YouTube. And, uh, uh, the 11th hour was like, I had to rent it off Amazon, which is, you know, rare for a documentary. Yeah. seems like most, most documentaries we've come across are, are just like, they're just trying to get you to watch <laughs> yeah, they're, it. They're just around, just laying yeah. on the ground. Um, so yeah, I, I watched Dice on fire first for the, the reason you're talking about. And I just want to say that, as far as like editing style goes and animations, it's probably not the strongest film. There were, were way too many illustrations of just the letters CO2 coming off of things and going into the atmosphere. It was yeah. very much like a, like an old school, like chemistry video you'd watch in high school or something yeah. like an old, old VHS from the eighties that the teacher pulls out and blows the dust off of. And he's like, watch this for half an hour. Right. Uh, but I don't know. I just, I, I liked it because it real, it was sort of like, well, I didn't love either of these films, I'll say, but whereas the 11th hour was more of like a combination of kind of movement leaders and environmental activists with a lot of scientists, Ice on Fire tended to be just like, just scientists, just people doing research and, and, and not just scientists, but also like CEOs of these environmental companies. Yeah. So it really captured that kind of like, reliance on like the technocrats will save us and they'll come in and they'll sequester all the carbon and it'll save the world. And they even say a lot of times in the film, we're going to save the world doing this or we can save the world doing this. Yeah. I think one guy just explicitly says technology can save us. So let's yeah. do it. And uh, so all those parts are kind of like cringeworthy and, and, and laughable. Uh, but I liked it because it's sort of, it, this is a cynical reason to like it. But it was, it's kind of like an existential exercise in finding hope in a hopeless situation is how I kind of read it. Um, hmm. All these, these sort of reliance on these technologies and, you know, saying we're going to create these carbon sinks. And they talk a lot about tipping points. And I feel like the tipping point as a thing is a big sort of existential exercise of, you know, pushing the 
the the cliff's edge a little bit farther away and a little bit farther away and a little bit farther away, but we always get there and surpass it. But they keep coming up over and over and over again. So it was just sort of interesting to me in the sense of all these people uh, on a sinking boat uh, with spoons flipping water out of it, and they're like, we're going to be fine. Uh, so it, it's sort of a cynical reason <laughs> to, to yeah. enjoy the film, yeah. but just sort of the seriousness with which they present these ideas and you know for a lot of those ideas yeah those are great we should do those on massive scales you know at the least we should do those things uh but you know you there there were a lot of weaknesses in it as well i just thought it was as far as explaining the technologies which it could have done i think explaining the technologies a little more could have been helpful i think was a little bit more interesting than a lot of the parts of the 11th hour which was sort of like I don't know, more like in the vein of an inconvenient truth, except with more people talking, a lot of Stephen Hawking. Yeah, that was kind of a strange inclusion. But but I did like in the 11th hour, part of the reason I liked it was the sort of eclecticism of perspectives, which, again, I mean, that's not what Ice on Fire is trying to do. And, and I didn't I didn't dislike Ice on Fire. Uh, I, I very much uh, I really I. I felt like the ice on fire should have been the documentary that came out in like 2006, you know, mm-hmm. uh, where it was, it, it's actually a pretty good, uh, you know, explanation of I mean, everyone you know, you hear on the news, it's like, Oh, scientists all agree on, on climate change. You don't really know who these scientists are. And this is a good introduction to like, individual scientists and there's i mean you know, probably like 30 of them or something that you see in the film uh, and and they're you know they're all related to climate change but they're doing very different things each of them you know some are like doing the sort of methane release uh experiments in the arctic and then some of them are you know in a lab in harvard um and so i, I think that would have been a great thing to have uh, maybe put put some human faces on the statistics that you hear. Like these are the people that are gathering the statistics that are pointing to this catastrophe everyone's talking about. And so for this to come out in 2019 seems a little beside the point. Um, but what I liked about the 11th hour is that there were several people, especially towards the end, that were saying a lot of the things that we've said on this podcast, uh, which I think is are more fundamental. They said, you know, you can point at pollution, you can point at waste, you can point at all these issues that that combined make up climate change, but the real problem is an orientation to the planet. The real problem is culture. Um, and so in a lot of ways, uh, ice on fire felt retrospectively cause I watched it first after seeing the 11th hour ice on fire felt like a sort of sad concession. You know, clearly the filmmakers are aware of these issues that like, um, you know, that there is a sort of spiritual root to the problem, um, that is, you know, allows us to create these terrible conditions that we have to overcome and and then ice on fire is just like yeah maybe we can invent some 
awesome bullshit to uh, <laughs> fucking suck carbon out of the air. Did you see those things? You know what? That's that's outdoor air conditioning is what that is. <laughs> yeah, it was um, what I think was really interesting about those kinds of scenes where it's talking about the technology is they'll be like, oh, here's the machine and it functions in this way. And they always get to like one crucial part of how it functions and don't explain it. So they're like, oh, we suck all the carbon out of the air into this container and then it's transported down to our greenhouses where it's used to grow the plants. And I'm like, okay, but how, <laughs> like how exactly are you doing? Yeah. You can't just like pipe it in. And, and something they don't really talk about is like, if these are such new innovative technologies, what are the potential consequences of this? Yeah. You can't, you can't manufacture 300,000 or whatever the number was, the guy said of these giant external air conditioners and expect it not to fuck everything up. Uh, and that's why I say it's a sad concession is because the, the 11th hour is talking about all these sort of like cultural changes that need to happen. Ice on fire touches on it a little bit when you had the, uh, the guy who's like talking about urban gardens and things like that. Yeah, and the fisherman. Uh, I thought that and was the a, fisherman. Yeah. That guy part. was entertaining and, you know, had some good things to say, but in the 11th hour, you've got all these people talking about cultural conditions, orientations that have to be rearranged. And, and in ice on fire, that is largely unaddressed because it's as if they, uh, you know, they're saying that would have had to have happened in the last, you know, 12 years or whatever it had been. And, and it didn't. And so now we just have to put our faith in technology. Uh, and to me, that's just, it's just very sad and shitty. Yeah. And it's also, it's also equally unrealistic. <laughs> it reminded like the whole time I was watching uh, the documentary, I was thinking of a quote from the play blasted by Sarah Kane and Sarah Kane was a like British playwright. Very sad. I think she ended up killing herself actually, uh, which if you read her plays, a lot of that sort of, inter turmoil comes through in it blasted is a very like interesting play and if you're looking to get good and real fucking sad i'd recommend reading it but there's this quote <laughs> where the two main characters are arguing about whether or not there's a god you know you know light conversation you have and the one character uh was like of course there's not a god and the the other one says well how do you know and his response his response is no God, no Father Christmas, no fairies, no Narnia, no fucking nothing. <laughs> and, and the whole time I was watching this documentary, I was just like, no Father Christmas, no fairies, uh, no, no carbon, carbon sequestration. Yeah. None of this like, uh, what, what, fuck, what do they call it? Oh, oceanic snow. That's not what it's called. Something snow, like dropping the iron pellets into the ocean and then somehow... Oh, I didn't know what they were saying. It was like marine or I, I don't know what they yeah. what the term is. It was another one of those things where they were like, this is a great revolutionary idea. Here's how it works. But they don't really tell you how it works. And it was just very all of it was very kind of cloudy as far as the explanations went, except for they were very emphatic that it was going to have a major impact and save the planet. Here's a here's a thought. I pulled out Naomi Klein's "This Changes Everything," who uh, part two of of this book, a good 
couple hundred pages is really to her credit is about the impossibility of a strictly technological fix to this problem. And she starts with uh, a, a quote from uh, political scientist William Barnes and uh, intellectual historian Nils or Niles Gilman. <clears throat> and she, the, the quote is vast economic incentives exist to invent pills that would cure alcoholism or drug addiction and much snake oil gets peddled claiming to provide such benefits. Yet substance abuse has not disappeared from society. Given the addiction of modern civilization to cheap energy, the parallel ought to be unnerving to anyone who believes that technology alone will allow us to pull the climate rabbit out of the fossil fuel hat. The hopes that many greens place in a technological fix are an expression of high modernist faith in the unlimited power of science and technology as profound and as rational as Augustine's faith in Christ. Thoughts? I mean, yeah. <laughs> yeah, yeah, absolutely. It's really, it's not only sort of, you know, deeply sad and foolish to put all of your hopes in the basket of, you know, technology, you know, like she said, pulling the rabbit out of the hat or, you know, the sort of deus ex machina, uh, literally God from some sort of machine to come and save yeah. us. Like, yeah. not only is it sad and foolish, but it, it's just... Uh, I don't know. There's just something, something about it that just seems like, uh, I don't know. I can't put my finger on it other than, other than the sad and foolish part. I well, can't remember. Uh, later, later remember in the same chapter, she's quoting someone else, uh, somebody from Drexel university, uh, sociologist, sociologist, Robert Brule and Steve, Brule? Says, Dr. Steve Brule, uh, related to Steve Brule. Uh, he says the movement to technical and market-based analyses as the core of reform environmentalism gutted whatever progressive vision the movement had previously held. Rather than engaging the broader public, reform environmentalism focuses debate among experts in the scientific, legal, and economic communities. It may provide technical solutions to specific problems, but it neglects the larger social dynamics that underlie environmental degradation. Preach. That's that. That's what I'm saying. Take them to church. You know, like <laughs> the the ig ignoring of the underlying social dynamics that you know cause this environmental degradation. That is something that the eleventh hour addresses, and that is something that uh, ice on fire does not. It, it is strictly uh, uh, a. a expert approach you know yeah, well, these oh. experts with their with their uh toys will save us they're experts with their expertise they yeah. uh, there are a couple spots where i think it sort of starts getting at some of these deeper sorts of changes and like we said the spots we kind of identified already there's the fisherman who spent you know a long time working in the bering sea he talks about how unethical and just destructive it is and so now he's working on these more sustainable forms of, of aquaculture and all that kind of stuff and all that he great. said he said he was there for i remember this weirdly for a bunch of years <laughs> yeah. from new for a bunch of years and now he's growing kelp and oysters and be, trying to form some and he made that point that was like if you could cover 
whatever square mileage with this kelp and other things that you could in essence you know capture all of this carbon and uh little hopeful things like that 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 make more sense than the carbon sucking machine because nature already does them <laughs> on on some sort of scale but then yeah. the, the second one was um the lady and i don't remember anybody's name i didn't write anybody down so if they weren't famous i don't remember them but uh, this lady talking about creating these urban uh, carbon sinks these kind of green spaces in these urban areas mm-hmm. And I only bring her up because one, that's a really good and easy and productive way to create some sort of carbon sink and to get sort of people involved in the space in which they live in. So all that's great. But then, uh, well, and also create greater access to, to food and food deserts, stuff like that. But then she also talks about how the work on those spaces changes the way that people see themselves. Uh, and there's also this talk about, you know, someone, uh, I believe it's somebody who works in this space that they built in this, this city says, you know, a farmer has to have a sort of future orientation because that's the nature of farming. Um, so you have to have some sort of hope for the future or else why would you plan anything, all this sort of stuff. And so mm. this idea of that kind of work and that kind of change in our relationship to the place that we inhabit uh, can change, not the way, just the way you see it, but the way you see yourselves. And you start thinking, you know, I'm someone who, uh, you know, is into nurturing my environment and having it sort of nourish me in return for the work that I put into it. Um, and not just being, you know, 100% consumer balls to the wall all the time. So I thought that was, it was kind of an interesting, uh, picture of a thing that's, that's bigger than an individual action, but smaller than like a worldwide movement that I thought is very doable for almost everyone. Uh, and it has that effect that it can sort of change the way that you relate to the space that you live in, which I think both of the documentaries would suggest is a big thing we need to do. Although definitely the 11th hour does that more so. Yeah. It, it makes me think of, it makes me think of my neighbors. Um, I don't, I don't really know what to, I feel like there's a large point to be made here, but I can't really formulate it yet. Um, just against the backdrop of climate change and, you know, living locally and thinking locally. Uh, <clears throat> I, I live next to <clears throat> uh, some, some people who I don't know very well because I haven't lived there very long. Uh, and my other neighbor told me that they, it's a, bi- a big family of uh, maybe seven or eight people live there and he said that they don't go to the store they like maybe once a month they go buy some like rice or something but they are almost completely self-reliant in terms of food and even he was saying like clothing the the matriarch of the family can just like make everything and they raise goats and sheep and uh chickens and pigs and you know they live in you know some obscure corner of murfreesboro tennessee Um, and as i was watching whichever one it was talking about these urban spaces it's like this is not really a 
it should not be an issue that gets talked about on the news or in documentaries. It's like, I, I feel like people who are actually living in, in any harmonious way are not people who are plugged in enough to like be in a documentary. You know, it's like the, the people I live next door to are never going to be interviewed and put in a HBO documentary. Uh, and, and there's probably a million people just like them. Uh, well, we you, you, do you see what I'm saying? It's like, it's yeah. like nothing. It's, it's related to the point we keep making about movies existing within a technological consumer society. And so they themselves cannot critique a techno consumerist society. Uh, like any, anyone who's in a, you know, involved in these sort of huge projects is probably not living the sort of life or is not able to live the sort of life that they are kind of recommending or implying should be lived. Uh, and that's sort of, I, I mentioned it last week where I, I was saying the more I kind of think about all these things that we talk about every week is like the more I see that the, the people who are actually doing things and, and living in a way that is consistent with the, uh, with, with nature, harmoniously with nature that are not fucking the world up are not people you hear about, you know, it's, and you don't, and these people probably don't give a shit about climate change. You know, they don't, <laughs> yeah. they're not like checking the news about climate change because it has nothing to do with that. It's, it's a, it's, it's culturally rooted. If you grew up learning how to live, uh, self-reliantly, then that's what you're going to do. Uh, or at least you'll be able to do it. But if you're like me and you grew up in a sort of, and, and most people, you know, that I know grew up, you know, normally watching TV and eating fucking fruity pebbles. Uh, you don't know how to like make soap <laughs> and things like that. Yeah, Because your, your response is why would I make soap? They have it at the store. Right. And they have a right. million different kinds. All, all that to say, it, it, I just think, um, what needs to happen are that is that major political decisions need to happen in order to make it much more likely and and maybe one of only a few possibilities that you live like my neighbors you know what i'm saying yeah um, or that or that people like my neighbors uh are in a position to teach people how to do what they do and maybe make a little bit of money off what they do or, or something. Uh, I just don't think anything as politicized and large scale as, you know, the, the issue of climate change. Um, I just, it just feels so plugged in that it can't be real. I don't, I don't, and maybe that's sort of betraying my, uh, my sort of orientation to it, my, my belief that like in some ways climate change is just another act in this political and entertainment sort of theater. You know, it's just another thing on the news, which of course it's not. I mean, these things are happening. 
happening. But but the fact that it is mediated uh, through you know all these things that are uh, these media that are also the media of entertainment and of of politics it's it's no wonder that people are suspicious of it um, anyway I, I'm not sure where that's going but the the more we talk about this the more I feel like uh, it, it, it's like a it's like an identity marker where people want to be people want to like be seen as some sort of climate concerned type of person but the second that it starts to impact how they live it's uh, that they're not interested in that um, and, and the people who are actually living the way you know people who talk about climate change say people need to live don't give a shit about climate change because they're too busy you know get busy living, living or get living busy dying. yeah what'd it, you say i said get busy living or get busy <laughs> watching climate reports that's uh, goddamn right but the, i don't know the, like you you're saying kind of going off in a lot of directions but you know they're all they're all related and it kind of makes me think of uh you know trying to make ethical decisions as a consumer and how difficult that is the whole idea that there's no ethical consumption under capitalism all that kind of thing yeah. said that in front of a class once and they all just looked at me like i fucking you know came down through the ceiling um yeah i remember, <laughs> I remember getting into an, an argument when i was younger with my dad about uh i think it started with chick-fil-a and i basically said there there's no such thing as a christian uh, business or corporation or something like that. Certainly not a fast food corporation. He uh, he took exception to that. <laughs> He's like, but you have you had the nuggets? Uh, <laughs> but you know, I was trying to think of like I, I've gotten really into. Well, this has always kind of been the case because when you you grow up poor, you kind of get into going to Goodwill and stuff like that. Uh, but there's a lot of thrift stores around here. I don't know if that's just like a a common thing in Alabama or what's going on. Um, but I've gotten into going and looking for uh, really durable, like old man clothes. Sort of like if you see a picture of uh, Edward Abbey, like out in the desert, those yeah. kinds of shirts. <laughs> so like I found one the I other day. I know exactly what you're talking yeah, about. It, it's a, like the other day I found one that was like, I forget the company, but it, it's some like old shirt that obviously some like old dude who liked to go hiking or whatever had. And it's made out of canvas and it's like, like super durable. And I was like, oh, this will last a long time. So I'll be buried it. in this. Yeah, I was like, I can wear this every day and nothing will happen. Um, and I've gotten into like buying, you know, types of shoes that people own forever. So I got like a pair of Birkenstocks, like an old hippie, a pair of Doc Martin boots. And I'm like, oh, these will last forever. And if something happens, I can have them repaired. Uh, yeah. Which The idea of shoe repair is just such a, you know, foreign concept for a lot of people. It's like, oh, I'll just, you know, take them to Goodwill, throw them in the trash. Well, that's um, I, I'm into that. I, I try not to buy like new clothes. Uh, I mean, just for financial reasons, but also, you know, this one quick Google uh, will show you that somewhere someone is suffering for your old Navy clothes, yeah. you know, 
And this uh, is a it's a far cry from your neighbor like making their own clothes and and right, going but to the it, store but it's, once but it's a not month. Nothing, you know. Yeah. Uh, yeah. And something else that that kind of made me think of, and it, it kind of, I don't know if you've experienced this of like something climate change related comes up in a group setting, and if no one says anything, there's kind of this collective, like silence and it's almost like a collective grief almost and uh, so we uh we went to this gathering last night uh there's some people we know here and they live in this house out kind of in out in the county like out in the woods and there's a little lake that's on the the property that they're renting and you know really serene like picturesque lake it has a couple beavers that live on it and uh they were explaining that like oh normally it's all the way up here and the lake was like several feet lower than normal because, you know, it didn't rain here for two months. It actually rained today for the first time in like two months. Mm-hmm. And uh, they're like, oh, yeah, it's usually way up here. But, you know, because there's been no rain, it's like, you know, eight feet lower than it would be or whatever. And we all just kind of go, oh, and then we just sort of stand there in silence for a few moments. <laughs> and then eventually somebody says something else. And it's almost like like this weird collective grief that you have going on. So like in movies or TV shows, like I think of The Leftovers where like half the world's population disappears or in Avengers Endgame, where like half the population disappears and the whole sort of gist of the narrative is like, how do we deal with this massive loss on such a huge scale? Mm-hmm. Uh, and it's, it's kind of like that. I think people are starting to come around to realizing what's been lost. Like imagine when they're like, they come on the news one day and they're like today, the last, you know, trout died or something. Right. Yeah. Like your grandkids, like, Grandpa, tell me what it was like when, I don't know, bluebirds were around, you know, something like that. Right. Well, that that was one part of Ice on Fire that was pretty effective was those, uh, the uh, graphics showing the loss of ice. Uh, I mean, it's in 20 years, it's like been reduced by like 60% or something, maybe more. Uh, it's terrifying that yeah. that the the world can change so quickly something that has been there for as long as humans have been here uh is is just gone yeah and the like the uh the bridge in iceland right that was yeah, over a river yeah. and now it's just over land and people are like why do you have this bridge here like oh let me tell you a story it didn't the guy say it's like become you know unintentionally it's sort of a monument to you know to what's happening to the to climate change uh because obviously this bridge would not exist at least not to the in the way that it exists now if there weren't water there if there wasn't water there before you know and it's the he said it's the longest bridge in the country yeah um and something else that uh your story about your neighbors made me think of is a big focus in ice on fire uh, and, and also the, the 11th hour is this idea that for these changes to occur, specifically these kind of technological changes, they have to be profitable. And they talk a lot about the green economy. Yeah. And, oh, that, uh, that's, uh, remind me, I've got something that I don't want to forget to say about that guy at the end who's talking about that. Oh, the guy who's like, yeah, at the end of the 11th hour, who's talking about, you know, if we retrofit the government buildings, that guy. No, I think it's I think it's ice on fire. Uh, okay, where he's yeah. talking about profitability. 
Yeah, yeah. And that's that's a big focus for, especially in Ice on Fire, for like the company that's making the, what you call the outdoor air conditioners uh, <laughs> and that kind of thing. They talk about, you know, this is, you know, a lot of investment in this. It's going to create a lot of jobs in these sectors and that kind of stuff, which, you know, I'm not completely against. I think especially things like retrofitting buildings to be more environmentally friendly or however you want to phrase it could, you know, create a mass of a massive new workforce. And if the green new deal happened and there's a new works progress administration and they're hiring people to come and build wind turbines or whatever, I'm going to sign up and go. <laughs> but it just, I just think it's kind of, I don't know, it's really it kind of left a bad taste in my mouth for the most part <clears throat> when they're like, Oh, well, you know, uh, well, first off, let's mention the profit profitability and the fact that this is going to, you know, it, we're going to make a profit off this. And they talk a lot about how, not only is it producing a lot of energy, but it's cheap for the consumer. So they are going to notice a difference there, which, you know, all the things I guess are important to get people on board, but it's, it, I don't know, just it, call me a dreamer, but it seems like keeping everyone <laughs> from, from dying in boiling seawater should be enough of a motivation. You would think one would think, yeah. um, Two, two things. I've just been, again, flipping through Naomi Klein's This Changes Everything. And she actually, I've got it underlined here. It's probably like an unconscious memory. Uh, she actually calls these, uh, calls these, uh, machines that they're talking about in Ice on Fire planetary air conditioning. <laughs> so there it is. Um, yeah. so, so that guy at the end of Ice on Fire, he, his, his big point is that, uh, altruism will not be necessary. And isn't that a great, you know, isn't that great that we won't have to be altruistic, uh, because it, there's actually a clear profit motive, uh, in, in establishing sustainable technologies. And like, yeah, I think we've probably made that point on this podcast several times. There is economic incentive to, you know, it's what the green new deal is all about. Uh, you know, implementing sustainable technologies can be an economic uh, plan, you know, and, and it makes capitalistic sense. But the way he phrases it as like, uh, we, we do not require altruism is, is exactly what we were talking about earlier when it said it, it these sort of technological solutions leave out underlying social dynamics that also need to be changed so that this cycle of destruction does not continue. Um, why would we choose the option that, um, that precludes altruism? Why should we not want to live in the version of the future that requires us to be better than we were that, you know, than we have been. This is a, a real form of insanity. Uh, I've been reading Marilyn Robinson lately who, who I don't agree with on, on everything. Sometimes she says things that are kind of infuriating. Um, but her, uh, one of her main points, one of her, biggest uh, points of her diagnosis of, of contemporary American culture is that everything 
is at the mercy of a cost benefit analysis. Uh, and, and that's really what that guy at the end of ice on fire is, is, you know, he falls in line with that. Uh, the economic principle is the determining factor in all fucking decisions, everything. I mean, from, from political decisions down to like individuals, personal shopping decisions, you know, this is, this is the, the true religion of America. Um, and, and cost benefit analysis is just some sort of doctrine or, you know, it's like a Psalm or something. Um, yeah, that, that, that was the, the point I wanted to make about that guy because I just don't understand why it, it's like he's, he's trying to convince us that this is the better way because it won't require altruism. Yeah, it's like, good news, guys. We don't have to care about anything anymore. <laughs> right. Business will continue as usual. And the business of America is business. And like it's, I don't. It's just a, a failure on so many levels, right? It's like a, it's like a ethical failure. It's a like a spiritual failure, an ideological failure, uh, to take that sort of central core of, you know, caring about others out of it and be like, you don't have to worry about it anymore. And he, maybe he meant some meant some sort of like. Uh, altruism in the sense of like Bill Gates donating a billion dollars or something like that. Uh, but in, you know, in a more general sense, it, it is kind of, I don't know, very sad to think about the future in that kind of way of like what it's not only, it's not only sad, it's fucking boring is what it is. Yeah. Everyone, it, it's like, are, are people so satisfied with their lives that, that they want things to continue how they have been? Because it doesn't seem like we live in a particularly satisfied culture. We, we live in a fucking culture addicted to, to things that will help us not experience our lives. So, so I don't really know what it is people are trying to conserve, uh, in, in terms of, uh, you know, continuing on business as usual because it's not working how you know whatever we're doing now is not working yeah it's a lot of it's also sort of cowardly and and lazy i guess to to let your imagination be hijacked by someone telling you that they have a machine that's going to fix all of your problems um you know you don't need to worry about um you know learning how to collect rainwater or whatever because we have this shipping container with a fan on it and that's going to suck all of the bad gases out of the atmosphere. Um, it, and it's, I can see why that would be appealing, right? That's kind of what, what I expected when we decided to do this documentary, uh, ice on fire. I mean, because it's very, it's sort of like, a, you know, you, you could watch it and be like, Oh, well, thank God they're doing that. Thank God somebody took care of this problem I've been hearing about on NPR or whatever. Yeah, it's like uh, like Curtis White says, environmentalism is a is a really a set of compromises. It's deal making in a moral abyss, uh, and that's I feel like Ice on Fire is representative of that statement. It is deal making in a moral abyss. Yeah, and that's uh, 
I keep talking about, but that's another great part of that. Uh, this land book by, by catch. Oh yeah. Um, yeah. T- talks a lot about the sort of contemporary environmental movement, uh, being very sort of centrist and trying to find middle ground with all of these, uh, destructive industries and how you always end up losing if you're starting from that point of, well, you know, let's make a compromise and then you get compromise. You compromise down a little bit more, a little bit more, and then eventually it doesn't even matter that you're there in the first place. Mm-hmm. Um, so starting off with that sense of let's see what we can get is maybe not the, the best uh, <laughs> right. p- starting position for something that is so massive and important. Yeah. And, and again, that, that comes back to that sort of cost efficiency, uh, aspect I was talking about. Uh, and another thing, Marilyn Robinson, uh, talks about and the book i'm i'm pulling from is uh her most recent collection of essays what are we doing here i believe is what it's called mm-hmm. um uh, i think i text you to watch the, or to to read her essay the the american scholar now and she's talking about universities and how really even just like the design of them and the the existence of, uh, of universities um, and just like the architecture and things like that points to the idea that there was a time in America where uh, there were things more important or, or at least some people believe that there were things more important than a cost-benefit analysis. Uh, because there's nothing particularly, um, you know, financially feasible about a a gigantic library uh, on a, on a campus. Uh, but the culture valued, or a, a town valued, or whoever valued uh, education so much that this sort of uh, project was deemed necessary or worthwhile in some capacity uh, and, and all that to say uh, it, it doesn't seem like it has to be like this it doesn't seem like environmentalists should just be uh, should, should come to the conversation ready to make concessions what what can we get because it, it, I, I think it's a very or it's a relatively new uh, situation where everything is subject and has to be defended with a financial argument. And again, we've talked a little bit about this specifically in relation to English departments as, you know, or the humanities as having to justify themselves, but even, even just like universities having to justify their existence or justify their, uh, you know, their physical space, uh, in a in a town yeah and so i don't know i i don't want to get into all the english department stuff again because that's <laughs> it's kind of niche um but but it goes back to the what we were talking about of um you know the uh, oh shit what were we talking about this whole idea of changing your orientation right of changing your uh sort of conception of of what is important sort of what is worth pursuing um, you know, what are the things that more or less make life worth living, right? 
and uh or well now it's becoming more what makes life possible like what makes it possible to live yeah um and you know trying to find those things and in the 11th hour it was interesting where they're uh talking about um the human mind i don't know the scientist's name but he's talking about sort of the development of the brain uh and he says that it threw us out of balance with the rest of nature yeah, and this concept uh, it gave us the idea or the, the the ability to think about a future as a thing that exists that we can plan for and build for and that sort of stuff. And it was interesting because it was like at once he's saying that it was a great thing because we became humans as we know ourselves today, but also it threw us out of balance. It created this this sense to you know always be pushing, always be progressing, all that sort of stuff. And it was kind of interesting to see see somebody do kind of a takedown of the human mind. Um, yeah. And so this idea of uh, that just kind of thinking about education made me think of that because a big question I keep finding myself asking to myself mostly is what is education for? Like what is higher education for? Because mm-hmm. I definitely think it's for something that a majority of people do not. And I'm not saying that I'm right. I'm just saying I have a different idea. Um, Whereas all the students and definitely all the administrators have a different kind of idea of what education is and what it's for. Mm -hmm. Um, And so it's training work. Workforce training is, is the dominant idea. Yeah. Which if, if that's all it is, then why do you need to read Shakespeare or whatever, right? Why do you, why do you need, yeah. yeah, Why do you need to know about any sort of philosophical concept? If you're just going to be, you know, at a computer for 14 hours a day or whatever. Um, so I don't know, just this whole idea of reorienting ourselves. I think it, it goes beyond just, it goes with to our relationship to place our relationship to the planet, our relationship to, ourselves and what we think our purpose is for and like i i don't know what it was but like watching the 11th hour got me got me down on my feelings and i was like making these notes and uh it was around that part where they're talking about uh the human mind and stephen hawking was saying some some smart shit and all that and uh i was i just wrote down that maybe the greatest challenge uh in human life sorry sorry i can't read my own handwriting Maybe the greatest challenge in human life should be not how we come to terms with dying, but how we come to terms with being forgotten. <laughs> that that was my thought while I was watching this documentary. Um, yeah. And, you know, and you've talked about uh, Ernest Becker, right? Denial of death. Yeah. And uh, I have that audio book that I'm going to start listening to at some point. I just haven't had the courage to yet. Um, <laughs> it fucked me up pretty good, honestly, when but, I was younger. Yeah, well, th- there's that. There's, uh, you know, obviously that's a big kind of existential question of death and dying and all this kind of stuff. But there's, I think a lot of it stems from this other question of you don't want to be forgotten, right? And uh, that's a big deal, I think, because you have all these talking heads, these activists and whatnot in the 11th hour specifically talking about how earth moves on a time scale that we can't comprehend, right? You have deep time earth moves over millions of years and that's how, um, Oren something, I forget it. Um, Oren Lyons, he kind of ends the film saying that, you know, earth will be okay. Earth will regenerate over millions of years and change and 
keep going, but you know, we won't. Right. And that's kind of the thing that, that trips a lot of people up when you talk about these sorts of issues is just the sheer scale of them. And the fact that you right now listening to this or us talking here won't factor into sort of the final, who has the final say on this kind of thing. No. And, and I think one of Ernest Becker's major points in, in that book is that you have to overcome the idea that immortality is real before you can even really uh, live your life. Um, you know, he calls the, these things, he calls immortality, the, the project of immortality. And, and, and so much of culture is, is constructed to give us the illusion that we will uh, leave a lasting uh, mark or we will be remembered. Um, but it's like the, the real, the real point is that, I mean, on a long enough timeline, <laughs> was that from Fight Glover on a long enough timeline, the survival rate for everyone drops to zero or everything drops to zero. Yeah. Um, so it's, it's a futile uh, project uh, and and these systems we construct to try to give us the this feeling that our lives have meaning and that we will be remembered when you can really see it against the abyss of eternity is just it's just kind of pathetic and that and that's not to say that life is pathetic that's to say that uh, arranging your life around immortality is pathetic. The idea, people don't want to be obscure. They are afraid of obscurity. And I think what's so great about the, the book, The Denial of Death, is that it really hammers home the point that there is nowhere else to be but in obscurity. That is all there is. Even if you are the most famous person in the world, you will die and be forgotten, and and that's it. Um, that and so the conclusion we should draw from that is that th- there needs to be a deeper source of meaning in your life that is not you fitting yourself into some sort of preconceived notion or archetype or construct uh, that is really just a a sort of weirdly a, a technology uh, like a psychological technology to to uh, make you think life uh, your life will be will somehow transcend mortality and it won't no ma- even if those things work in the short run, uh, the sh- I mean, the short run is nothing on a scale of eternity. Yeah, it's like a uh, go read Ozymandias, right? He <laughs> <laughs> was forgotten. Um, and I, as I'm going to keep quoting things, uh, Frightened Rabbit song where <laughs> yeah, uh, he says, on, and head rolls off by Frightened Rabbit says, while I'm alive, I make tiny changes to earth. And that's kind of the best you can hope for. That's one reason that song is so kind of beautiful. Uh, 
the, the best you can hope for is that you make these little changes, leave some sort of impact on the people around you, that you have people that you love and things you care about. And then, you know, eventually you die and are forgotten. And that's okay. Like, that's the thing that people sort of don't realize right. is like, it's, that's fine. <laughs> right. That's exactly my point. I'm glad you said it that way. It's like, it only seems not fine because of your bullshit expectations. Yeah. You're not fucking Elton John, uh, first person that came to mind. You're, you're not, <laughs> you're, you're, you're not uh, Shakespeare. You're not, you know, Alexander the Great. But and even if you were, they will be, they, uh, here's another uh, musical quote from uh, Bright Eyes. The the master and the servant have exactly the same fate, right? Yeah. So, prince or pauper, you are food for worms, as uh, Mr. Keating from Dead Poets Society says. Yeah. We'll just, we'll just be quoting from random pop yeah, that's, We're just going to turn in the... Uh, that's all our podcast is. We just like talk about the films, but only in quotes from other films. We just like put a, like a mashup because uh, all, all our thoughts are contained in uh, movies and songs we've seen and heard. Yeah, but that's uh, th- this whole idea of like acceptance, I guess you would call it, of, of this sort of deeper timeline that you are a part of, but you're not you know, the only part of, right. It's a thing like we're all the protagonist of our own story. So we think everything's super important, right? Your, your life's protagonist. Therefore, when something happens, it's the biggest deal in the world. But, um, in the overstory by Richard Powers, that's kind of a big thing too, of, of trees are going to outlive in, in the ending of that's kind of bleak and sort of, you have to decipher things, but this idea that, you know, trees in this ecosystem are, they live on this massive time scale. Therefore, uh, you know, when we're gone, that's not that big of a deal. Like it's, it's actually maybe better for the trees. If humans die off is kind of what he suggests at the end of that novel controversially. Yeah. Um, but, but then it's like, what's so special about the trees? Yeah. And that's, and that's another thing. <laughs> if you, if you read about any sort, I've read a lot about like trees, weirdly, like Wendell Berry's got this really long essay about, uh, like ethical, lumber milling mm. uh, i don't know if you've read it it's in uh, our only world it's kind of this long thing i guess i guess i have i've read that book i don't remember that essay though he goes to i think pennsylvania and meets with a guy who does like a small scale lumber thing and he uses like he like pays amish guys to come and pull the trees out with a horse and he only takes out old growth and he only logs certain sections at certain times a year but th- there's this idea that um it comes up in this land and, and the overstory and all this sort of stuff of uh you know a, a dead tree in the forest is like a negative thing or it's like fuel for a forest fire or something like that when it's just a decaying tree that is then you know giving its nutrients to the plants around it and their animals living in it and it's a part of an ecosystem right and you know it's not like it's sort of that human hubris of for millennia trees have been dying and rotting in a forest and everything was fine. But then we come along, we're like, we should get really get rid of that dead tree. That's, that's bad news. <laughs> um, but th- this idea of just, I don't know, I'm just going to splice in uh turn, turn, turn by the birds here and just let that play <laughs> over and over again. Yeah. Um, but yeah, well, it's, it's a, uh, it's a, uh, that's a sort of anthropomorphism, you know, where 
some, something that really fucked me up maybe 10 years ago, I was flipping through my friend's uh, anthropology, medical anthropology textbook, and I saw a, a sentence. I don't remember the exact sentence, but it was talking about how, uh, you know, diseases and uh, dying only it's like we are like one of the only species that thinks it's bad because we're one of the only species that thinks on a, on a conscious level that, that, you know, has a notion of good and bad, um, like death, death as a negative thing is a human invention. You know, the universe exists on death that is what happens to organic life it it matures and grows and then it decays and dies uh, you know sometimes more rapidly than than other times uh, so to see a dead tree and just think it's a bad thing is actually this probably deeply unconscious aversion to your own death you know yeah uh, because how you can how you can live in the world and uh, you know think that death is somehow wrong is uh, you're just not paying attention. Yeah, and yeah, you know, it's not to say that it's not like a deeply sad thing, right? Obviously, oh, but no, yeah, it's the worst thing. <laughs> but that doesn't mean it's you know, wrong, what uh, wrong according to who? Yeah. Yeah. So, but you know, there's literally infinite number of works of art and philosophy and science about this. Right. Yeah. Uh, So if you're, if you want to learn more, (laughs) start with the denial of death, but Ernest Becker, (laughs) work your way up from there. Um, you know, that's one reason why all the like old romantic poets, especially like John Keats are so, intriguing right because he dies super young and knows that he's dying so mm. this has this sort of anyway we're not talking about the documentaries anymore um <laughs> so uh, overall i think I, I would say that you know we talked one of our criticisms of the inconvenient uh movies was that they have their their hearts in the right place for the most part but the way they go about doing things and sort of the suggestions that they have kind of fall flat. Um, and part of that is Al Gore and his sort of reliance on the political process as the means through which you can affect some sort of large scale change and all that kind of stuff. Mm-hmm. I think these films are um, both of them sort of more interesting and entertaining from like a documentary movie standpoint, uh, but also in spots and you know, I'd agree like the 11th hour more so than ice and fire are giving very useful pieces of advice. I guess you would call it like suggestions for living more or less. Um, and so in that sense, I think that they are more useful films, at least the 11th hour. Um, and then, you know, ice and fire has some major issues, but there are also some seeds of those kinds of ideas kind of floating around in there. Yeah, I really appreciated it in the 11th hour, like I said earlier, that they had so many different voices. Uh, you had James Hillman 
who's a sort of uh, contemporary Jungian psychologist. Uh, and he's actually got a book that I'm, I'm just sort of barely making my way through right now, uh, A Terrible Love of War. Um, and he, he was the one talking about uh, – I think he was elaborating on that point you were making earlier about uh, the human mind being the, the sort of cause of all this and how it's our greatest sort of asset but also our greatest hindrance. Uh, but uh, also Wes Jackson uh, of the Land Institute, who's uh, someone Wendell Berry is always talking to and writing about, uh, was was a major source of you know for the interviews in the eleventh hour. So whoever was in charge, I guess the directors of sort of compiling these sources, clearly was thinking about these things li- like. Like I think you and I have have done a decent job of of thinking about like from a from a broad perspective, not not a strictly statistical perspective. Uh, you know, Wes Jackson was talking about like soil depletion. James Hillman's talking about the human mind, and then of course you've got all the scientists talking about uh, you know sea level rise and uh, ice melting and and that sort of thing. Uh, so I, I just felt like it it really had a lot more uh, – the 11th hour really captured how wide-ranging the issue of climate change is, whereas uh, Ice on Fire kind of succumbed to the technocratic uh, expertise myth that you know science and technology is going to rescue us, and it's not. Yeah, and uh, Wes Jackson, I think – is toward the end of the 11th hour the uh, guy who is explaining things and he's like if we know what we need to do and we have the technology to do it and we know that it's going to like have this massive positive impact then what's the hold up uh something like that right uh, and he's yeah he's the one who then says this is uh, the reason it's an issue is because it is a cultural condition yeah not just a technological you know, setback or something. Yeah. And that's, and that's something that's made very clear in ice on fire as well. Weirdly enough, it kind of makes this point of, uh, we have all of this technology to, to do this already, especially I'm thinking about the, um, tidal power, like the, the like tidal ship that had the, the turbines on it. And it was like mm-hmm. producing all this electricity. And the point that all of these people kept making was, we have the ability to do this now and we know how to do it, especially the solar power stuff. It's like, we know how to do it. We have the materials and the expertise. Now it's developed. There's no yeah. reason we couldn't power it's like the, the entire, it's country. like the electric car. Yeah. Like it, it's we, exactly like the electric car because it's, it's the fossil fuel, uh, industry that, you know, is, is, uh, making both of those impossible. Yeah. And th- so there's no reason that we couldn't have an electric car powered, you're charged through solar energy. Like there's zero reason that should, that, that that's not on every corner. Right. Mm-hmm. Um, but well, I mean, there's a lot of reasons that have nothing to do with, you know, the ethical ramifications of it or anything like that. Like it's you're not saying about all these the political te- technological issues. ability. Yeah. Like it's, it's there. 
totally, totally in place. And just looking at, um, I'm just looking at Wes Jackson's Wikipedia page because I wanted to see what he looked like. But it has a, a few quotes. Um, he has this kind of ties into what we, we were just talking about. It says, if your life's work can be accomplished in your lifetime, you're not thinking big enough. <laughs> oh, that's good. Solid quote. I should have, if if I was a good researcher, I would have pulled some uh, uh, Wendell Berry stuff with him. I, like, I want to say Wes Jackson is in in the title of a few essays. It's like a conversation with Wes Jackson or letters with Wes Jackson and things like that. I assume that they agree on a lot of stuff, or I would, I don't know, I, I would kind of assume that Wendell Berry asks a lot of questions. Yeah. Yeah, because he he's that kind of inquisitive mind, mm-hmm. which is great to see him like at 112 or however old he is, and he's still like <laughs> asking a million questions about everything. Yeah, yeah. Well, um, are we uh, doc- halfway through October? Yeah, so uh, we have two more weeks where we'll be doing documentaries. Um, so I guess we're like, if we're done, this is like one of the shortest episodes we've had. Um, but, but I think, you know, that's kind of appropriate because I don't know. Both of these films are are fairly short, like just over an hour hour and a half. Yeah. And, and so, especially with ice on fire, we pretty much covered most of it. (laughs) Like it's not a very dense film really. Um, but the 11th hour definitely uses the whole talking head setup pretty effectively and it gets a lot of brings a lot of good perspectives together i think um yeah i do too of course it seems like stephen hawking sort of did whatever he was asked to do for a long time uh (laughs) but you know all these other people that these different perspectives are bringing together like you said i think is is done uh done pretty well and i think a part of that is sort of the pull of having a celebrity as the narrator and as a producer. Oh, I know what I want to talk about real quick. I want to talk about DiCaprio as a narrator. Yeah. Because I was not a fan. <laughs> um, and it's kind of weird because in the 11th hour, you know, it's from 2007 and maybe it was just the, the version I was watching. His voice changes pretty drastically. He still kind of sounds like little baby Leo in the yeah. 11th hour. And then by the time we get to ice on fire, he's got that like, the revenant voice kind of gruff thing going on. Uh, but in both, he's got that gunpowder in the throat voice. <laughs> yeah. Uh, but in both instances, I was not really a fan of his narration and not, not necessarily his delivery, but whoever wrote his narration, like, I don't know if it was him or somebody else is just like a piss poor writer. Yeah. There was one phrase. I wish I could remember what it was. It was like, we're at current, Shit, what was it? It's like something like we're burning fossil fuels. He says, currently, currently we're burning fossil fuels at an ever increasing rate. I'm like, that just, that's a bad <laughs> sentence. Revise and resubmit. Yes. Uh, so, yeah, it's just, and like I said, I don't know. It was mainly what he was saying and not how he was delivering it. But because what he was saying was so poorly written when he really went for like, dramatic emphasis it was kind of comical almost um yeah and and you could especially in ice on fire because he's he's not in the movie he's just narrating it Mm -hmm. it feels very red you know like you can just see him reading 
the prompter or something. Yeah, and then the the whole final bit of of ice on fire where he's he's like it's we have the ability to save the world. He and I just made that up. I don't think it's what he actually says, but it's pretty damn close to what he actually says. Yeah, uh, he's like we are the first generation that have seen that has seen the effects of climate change, and we're we're the first generation or the last generation that can stop it. That kind of thing. Uh, it's mm. like your mission if you should choose to accept it. <laughs> um, but, you know, as you said, there are people out there in the world doing plenty, doing more than their part, who do not give a shit about Leonardo DiCaprio's opinion. Right. So so I, that was kind of the last thing I wanted to mention because I was just thinking about it. And at the end of Ice on Fire, I was just like, ugh, not <laughs> great. Um, but, yeah, so Doctober... Uh, continuing next week and we're going to look at a couple of films that i think you're more familiar with them than i am yeah uh, I've, I've i've seen one of them but i haven't seen the other yeah so we're looking at uh having a kind of farm week we're looking at peter and the farm from 2016 the biggest little farm from 2018 yeah i've seen peter and the farm and it's it's uh it's worth watching. Uh, I can just go ahead and recommend it. It's unlike any other documentary I've seen. Uh, and it's all, you know, about this one, one guy, uh, and his farm. And I have not seen the biggest little farm, but uh, a fairly recent movie. And it seems like, um, if I had to guess, I, I suspect that Peter and the farm will kind of be, a challenge or maybe even a debunking of some of the myths that are judging from the trailer going to be perpetuated in the biggest little farm about farm, the organic farm life farm life. Yeah. What did that guy say in ice on fire that he called it his boss, the OG, the organic gardener. <laughs> <laughs> Sounds so, like something Hillary Clinton would say. Oh God. <laughs> Just chilling at the organic farm. Pokemon oh. go to the farm. Uh, so, so, yeah, we're going to be uh, looking at those two films together uh, next week. Um, and so, yeah, until then, uh, you can follow us on Twitter at Anthropod Tweets. I've tried to be more active on Twitter, said some inflammatory things about some stuff. So you should go mm. check it out. Um and then, as always, we're available on SoundCloud, Spotify, Stitcher, uh, Apple Podcasts, uh, which is not iTunes anymore because iTunes is dead. Um, so, yeah, find us wherever you can get us. Um, so, I'll miss you. Lord help us, we're back on our bullshit. <laughs> Never got off my bullshit. <laughs>